Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to Justice, a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system. With me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk to Jamie Morrell from the Criminal Justice Alliance and journalists David Cohen and Jodie Jackson about their experiences of reporting on the justice system. Today, the Alliance launches a report on how journalists can better shine a light on criminal justice for a more informed public. My name is Jamie Morrell and I'm the Communications and Engagement Officer for the Criminal Justice Alliance. And the CJA is a network of 170 organisations who are working towards a fair and effective criminal justice system. So each year, the Criminal Justice Alliance holds media awards um, to celebrate journalists, documentary makers and digital media champions who have improved public understanding of criminal justice, challenged misperceptions and inspired people to take positive action. Um, in 2018, we worked with a group of journalists and charities to produce some criteria for what good criminal justice reporting looks like. And I can come back to that a little bit later on. Um, I joined the Criminal Justice Alliance in early 2020. Before, earlier on, I had trained to be a journalist. Um, and yeah, a lot went over to the dark side of PR. I kept a strong interest in, in journalism and I work with journalists all the time as part of my job when we're launching campaigns, trying to influence change in public attitudes and government attitudes. We usually do media campaigns as well. Um, and I just wanted to dig a little bit deeper into how journalists can report on criminal justice in a more sensitive and constructive way, because we know that there are challenges that journalists face themselves that can limit their ability to report on things in a nuanced, constructive, sensitive way. And we know from the awards as well that there's plenty of good practice out there, plenty of journalists who are doing a really good job. And I just wanted to find some of those nuggets of information and, and really start a conversation about criminal justice reporting. Um, I didn't want the report to be the end of the conversation, it's the beginning of the conversation, looking at some of the key issues. And so we spoke to journalists, people with lived experience and charities um, about their experiences with the media. We spoke to academics, people like Jordi, who have done important work on solutions-focused journalism. And yeah, as I said, the report scoped some of the issues and provide some suggestions on how criminal justice reporting can be improved and we, we really welcome conversations with, with journalists going forwards to discuss how they can implement some of these, these suggestions in their own work. So hi, I'm Jodie Jackson and um, my work, so for the last 10 years, um, I've been researching the impact of the news on mental health and on the health of society, um, predominantly looking at the negativity bias, first of all, and then 
became a keen advocate and campaigner for solutions-focused journalism, so reporting on progress and the process of change. Um, and then I wrote a book about four years ago called You Are What You Read, Why Changing Your Media Diet Can Change the World, to give readers, because I came into this conversation from the audience perspective, um, to really equip readers with the ability to navigate the news successfully, to make sure that they can remain informed but empowered as well, not totally overwhelmed by crisis constantly. Um, and more recently, having had children, I converted a lot of the work into um, children's messaging and children's news literacy. Uh, I wrote a book called Little Ruffle in the World Beyond. And more recently, I have founded the News Literacy Network to try and bring news literacy to educators and parents and help people from an earlier age be able to navigate the increasingly difficult news environment that we find ourselves in. Hi, Edwina. I'm David Cohen, campaigns editor and investigations editor on both the Evening Standard uh, for the last 10 years and, um, and for the last year also on The Independent. Um, the work that I've done for that relates to to this podcast is uh, more for the for the evening standard and relates to the kind of investigations and campaigns that we've done looking into youth violence um and very much trying to understand the problem and then also trying to be part of the solution both to understand what is needed for the solution and then also actually trying to uh, rally government, raise money, and uh, bring philanthropists, corporates, uh, media, um, and government together to actually do something, either a pilot or, or as often in, in opposition to government. You know, the view they may take, for example, on school exclusions is very different to the view that I've taken and the view that um, uh, progressives take in places like Glasgow. Um, so sometimes we, we, we do it despite government feeling that the, the answers lie in the other direction. Um, and yeah, so that's what I've been. I, I, my, my background is that I'm an author and a feature writer. And I got into doing campaigns and investigations when I launched the Dispossessed Fund and campaign in 2010. Um, and the impact, the, the way the readers responded was so was so palpable and so powerful that it's generated a sort of 11-year career now, which has sort of focused uh, a lot on issues of poverty, of inequality, of exclusion, and, and, and violence. And, and so I guess criminal justice is uh, where you end up, where all those, when all those things go wrong, you end up um, dealing with the criminal justice system. A broad question to kick things off, really. I think it's important to sort of helicopter up and sort of say, tr let's first try and work out what is journalism actually for, in your opinion? Jodie, what, what would you say to that? What, what do you think journalism is actually for? I mean, the ultimate aim of journalism really is to, you know, it's to inform us about events and issues in a way that empowers us to be able to act on them. Um, and the purpose of that really is to mobilize us into ultimately trying to make the world a better place. Kind of sums it up in a nutshell. Now, whether or not this is achieved in our current media landscape is um, definitely debatable. Because when you talk about the role of journalism and, you know, its, its purpose, there's very much a growing divide between in theory and in practice. You know, in theory, 
journalism is very much more, you know, when you talk about journalism and its purpose, it's very much more the noble presentation of what it is. And it's underpinned very much by the ideals. And then you have the practice version, which is compromised mainly because of the environment in which it's produced, you know, the fast paced nature um, the agenda perhaps behind it, the constant competition for our attention and the metrics that's used to measure its success. So as I mentioned before, you know, most of my work focuses on news literacy um, and focuses on helping young people distinguish between, you know, what is good quality journalism that perhaps, um, you know, reaches more of these ideals and which is kind of, you know, poor quality journalism that's, that steers away from this. Because ultimately, journalism is valuable and it's indispensable to a democratic functioning, um, but we have to understand its limitations so we can consume it in a way that is of value. Um, so it's really important that we kind of split journalism up and recognize it's not this one thing, it's many things. Um, and I think you have to first recognize that before you begin to talk about what type of journalism you're, you're actually discussing. Absolutely. I think that's so important. And my husband, who's sort of in the media, um, is always pointing that out. So if I sort of am getting angry about a sort of news article, it's like, why do the media write these things? And he's like, well, hold on a minute. Can we just separate this out of it? You know, what is the media? Um, but it's quite a responsibility, isn't it? David, I'm sure you felt that over the years, you know, the, the power in the pen, the power in language, the power in imagery to sort of ch either change people's minds or to reinforce a view that you believe is correct? Yeah, I mean, I think that's quite right. You know, journalism is for lots of things. It it slightly depends on what sort of journalism you're talking about with, even, you know, if different papers will have different, take different approaches, different types of media will take different approaches. And then within a newspaper, you get news, you get features, you get diary, you get uh, opinion. They are all four different things. For me, the bottom line of journalism, if we didn't have journalism, we would just have PR. And if we only have PR, we don't have anyone getting behind the statements which are um, trying to put across a certain position, uh, you know, to advance a certain cause. Without journalists, we would never be able to determine the veracity of those statements. And that, for me, is the essential reason and thing that is most essential about journalism and which is uh, huge of importance to a democracy. Because without that, we can't really tell what is true and what isn't. So a lot of journalism is about in entertainment. And then there's a lot of journalism is about edutainment. And some of it is about education. And some of it may be about solutions. But at its essence, it's about peeling back the layers and looking at what is really going on. And that, I think, is, is essential. In terms of the power of words and the power of imagery, both work together. But if, if for example, you're only thinking about the words and you have a very thoughtful rendition or explanation in the article that is layered and complex, but then the, if the image is not thought through in the similar way, you will have the piece being read instantly through the image and then it's fighting, the words may or may not get through. So ideally, both really are important, you know, both in obviously on television, but also um, in print. Yeah. And to, to use an example, there was something you were covering a um, knife crime in London. Is that right? And the use of the imagery of the knives was contentious. 
So, you know, I, I've worked on the standards since 2002. I'm not, the, I'm not the crime correspondent, but the stories about crime were covered in a certain way, and you could say crime sells, and crime stories were covered quite simplistically. You know, there was a uh, this awful event, and it, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, it makes the front page. But I then started to try and and look at crime more in terms of its causes, understand the people, spending a lot of time speaking to the individuals involved. I did a campaign called Frontline London in 2013, where we worked with former gang members. Some of them, the word former might be interpreted loosely, <laughs> but um, these these were uh, young people who whose worlds had involved a certain degree of violence, both as perpetrator and victim, and we're trying to move away from that. And then later, I did another campaign called, uh, which was tackling youth violence. Um, I did Save London Lives in 2018. And there's a, a, about three or four times where I've come at the subject with this, I which, uh, at what I thought was a certain degree of depth. Um, that I was trying to do. But I realized two things. The one is that the imagery that we used to use back prior to 2010, and then even in about 2012, 2013, the picture desk back then used to have these big images of knives and big blades. And they didn't, although, you know, that was like the old way of, of re reporting these, um, these sort of stories. And they worked against the more subtle understandings of the, the, the trauma-informed approach or the public health approach, which really tries to understand the, that often perpetrators are at certain points victims and the background behind how they become who they become and how they do what they do. And so, you know, I realized, well, we need, we need a whole newspaper approach. We need the picture desk have to be brought up in, 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 in line with the thinking of the, of, of the, of the news desk or the, uh, and, and uh, of the campaign or the investigations. And sometimes there are disjunctions between different parts of the newspaper. So I've never been the crime correspondent and the way we might investigate these issues in a campaign or investigation, we may you may still find in the same newspaper an old-fashioned way of reporting on crime in the news pages. You know, so it is an ongoing issue and an ongoing battle. But I've certainly realised in my campaigns and investigations that the kind when you're talking about imagery. Um, you really have to think that through. What is the impact of the images and do they work with the kind of complexity you're trying to convey in the story or do they play into old tropes? Yeah, and Jamie, that comes up in the report, doesn't it? The report's called Behind Closed Doors, How Journalists Can Better Shine a Light on Criminal Justice for a More Informed Public. And part of that was about imagery, wasn't it? And particularly showing young lads in hoods, for example. Can you say a bit more about that? Yes, well, one point that we raised in the report was that a senior police officer in Bedfordshire had raised concerns that by showing these images of large knives, that can actually inspire fear in readers, which is a lot of what Geordie's work is about. 
and it can actually lead to people carrying knives. So rather than helping solve the problem, it's contributing to the problem. And the point about having people in, in hoodies, you know, newspapers have a, a tremendous impact on public attitudes towards crime and criminal justice. And when you see someone turned away from the camera with a hood up, it becomes very easy to other that individual rather than realising that that individual has had lots of perhaps difficult circumstances in their life and has lots of complex needs that need to be addressed. When you see that picture of the, the person in a hoodie, it immediately forces you to other that individual. Um, but of course, it's not just journalists who have the responsibility over these images. David raises in the report that it's actually the sub-editors who by and large in the picture desk, who by and large decide what images are used and what headlines are used as well. There was some really interesting research from Ofcom a couple of years ago, which found that increasingly the public are consuming their news by reading headlines rather than by clicking on the article itself and reading through. And Twitter has recently introduced a feature on its platform where it encourages you to read an article rather than just a blindly retweet. But we are in a situation where people are consuming their news by reading headlines. I have to say, I don't know about you guys, but I'm definitely guilty of that when I'm scrolling through Twitter and you're like, oh, that's an interesting headline. And and I yeah, I try not to do it. Um, but it's sort of something we can all be guilty of, isn't it? Because it's just very easy to... But, you know, just picking up this point uh, that Jamie's making about othering people and, and how hard it can be. Because, say, you know, you're interviewing somebody who's who's got a bit of a past and who's changing their lives, say. And um, they may not want their image put in the newspaper. So then the, the, the go-to picture would be to have them from behind with a hoodie. And, you know, that, that would be, you would think, on, the, on an individual level, you're protecting that individual. But the way that piece gets read as Jamie said, it immediately others the individual. So it requires a whole lot more work by the journalist to then find actually people as subjects who are prepared to be photographed and to be prepared or prepared to be filmed and to be to have their faces shown so that the imagery matches the story. And that's that's the that was the difference between the work that I did say in 2018 and the work that I did in 2014. In t the, the, the stories are the same, but in 2018, I wouldn't accept my subject to be somebody whose imagery would be only from behind or only with a hoodie. And that meant I had to keep on searching and sometimes for months to find somebody who would would go further and who we could see as an individual and, and relate to as an individual, because that's what we're trying to, that, that's what allows you to break through the barriers of, of perception. The problem is though, with, with that, you know, that does take time. And a lot of news organizations, especially local ones where crime reporting can also be slightly higher is they don't necessarily have that time. Um, and crime reporting, is, as you said, it can be very simplistic and it's very easy. It's a very cheap source of news because the event is there and it's, you know, very readily available to report on, you know, the images, the um, event itself can be packaged up very quickly into a news story and put out. And when you've got 
journalists who need to produce five, six, seven articles a day, it just makes its way out there. And then we have this huge overrepresentation of crime. And, you know, as a consumer, the more we see something, the more common we consider it to be. And this is known as availability theory. And we're all susceptible to this because as we see more and more crime stories, because, you know, we have more and more news outlets in various different ways, whether it's television, 24-hour news cycles, social media, all the different platforms that are coming, it appears as if it's an increasing threat. And we actually have a distorted sense of risk um, where we misperceive reality and we consider it a more dangerous place than it actually is. And fear becomes a very self-protective response. You know, we actually care less about the other people um, because we, it's, it's so self-preserving, the, the feeling of fear. And that too can lead to a feeling of otherness um, and a feeling of disconnect between somebody else being a person and being a threat. Um, so I think, you know, it's not just necessarily, as you mentioned, you know, you would take the time to do that, but it's such an industry wide problem of how do we get everybody on board to take a more constructive approach to crime reporting rather than, you know, because there's just such a huge cascade of information that needs kind of vetting. And so half of it, obviously, will be industry led. Um, But I do think consumers have a really important role to play in supporting change within the industry as well. Absolutely. Um, One of the quotes from uh, the report says, research has shown that the public misunderstands both the nature of crime and how the criminal justice system operates in England and Wales. Um, And that's worrying on many levels, really, isn't it? Uh, I always go straight to the courtroom, really, and I think about jurors. And I think about um, the fact that jurors are just people like you and I. They consume news in the way that we consume news. And if they are reading things that are incorrect and have an incorrect view of the criminal justice system, what on earth does that do for our justice system or to our justice system? And the fact that then people are being convicted and potentially sent to prison for a very long time, off the back of, yes, they listen to the research and things are presented in a way to them in court, but you sort of think, God, that's that's kind of terrifying. I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> and there's a pregnant pause. But, you know, I, I guess that comes back to the separating out of the good journalism and the bad journalism. And, and to you, Jodie, sort of saying, trying to get people to realise that it's really important that you're conscious of what you're reading. Yeah, and I think, you know, when... When you look at any industry that's gone through a sustained shift towards a more positive purpose, um, you know, or towards a more positive social purpose, it has relied on a conscious consumer. Um, Very much, if you can explain the mission, people will come with you. You know, people, if you you understand the why, people will get to the how a lot quicker. And so if you can help people understand why journalism is important, why particular styles of journalism is important, you know, the impact that the negativity bias has on your mental health, on your social functioning, on your global citizenship, on the way that you, um, you know, react to local issues as well. It, it, it's really eye opening. And a lot of, you know, when you say to people the excessive negative nature of the news creates feelings of anxiety, depression, um, fear, contempt and hostility towards other people. It can make you become desensitized. You know, the, the news reports on the extreme and the extraordinary um, and it becomes very normal and ordinary. And this kind of goes back to the comment I was making before because it does find as well, um, you know, the, the news will find those more violent incidences of, of crime as well. And so we 
normalize them in a way where perhaps the frequency that we hear about them isn't necessarily matched with the frequency that they're occurring and the threat that we should feel against them. Um, and when you start to talk to people about the impact the news has on them, there's this intuitive sense of relief for feeling understood. You know, they've had these feelings themselves, but they haven't necessarily crystallized them or explored them. They've just switched off from the news because that's the ultimate, you know, finding the news too depressing is the biggest reason for audience disengagement. It's not because people aren't interested. And so you think at that point, well, hang on a second, this isn't then a problem with me, which is what I felt when I first switched off from the news back in 2010. Um, I've since become way more involved in it in a way that's probably slightly obsessive with the amount that I work with it. But um, but yeah, I realized you know, it wasn't a problem with me. It was actually a problem with the industry. And it became it became a different issue because it was something that we kind of all intuitively felt something needed to change. And that's where I got more involved with solutions journalism. And so I think, yeah, the when when people understand the impact that things have on them and they're able to resist the kind of immediate impulses that we're perhaps hardwired to to a certain extent and reason past those impulses for something that perhaps serves a longer term advantage to ourselves and to society, people can connect with that a lot better and they can change behavior a lot easier. Um, than if you're just telling them to do it because it's important to you. You know, it needs to be important to them. And it is important to them because it affects every single one of us through so many different ways. Um, and so it's just connecting with each person um, around that issue and hoping that they then come with you um, to create, yeah, this this change that's very much needed. I would just say as well that it's important to remember that the way that newspapers cover criminal justice does have a knock-on impact because public attitudes on crime and criminal justice impact the manifestos of political parties, um, it impacts the politicians that are elected, and then it enacts the policy changes that they bring in. And so within this context, the media have an important responsibility to ensure that the public are informed and that they're able to make informed decisions about the politicians that they elect. And the criminal justice system is really complicated. I know when I first started this job, it was my first job in criminal justice, it does take a little while to get used to all of the processes and the abbreviations and the legal language and the government data on performance of the criminal justice system isn't readily available. Um, it's hidden away in dense Excel spreadsheets on government websites, requires specialist skills to be able to read that data. And yeah, as you alluded to, Edwina, the Ministry of Justice researchers found that significant proportions of the public hold an inaccurate view about criminal justice. Most people underestimate the severity of current sentencing practices. And that research also found that people who perceive that crime is rising in the UK are more likely to call for punitive sentences to be imposed. And that has a tremendous impact, a vast impact on people's lives because the criminal justice system is very powerful. It has the ability to deprive us of our liberty for a certain period of time and it can make or break a person really. It can be the difference between someone going on to live a happy and successful and healthy lifestyle or, or to not. To not. Um, the Sentencing Council as well, similar research found that a lot of the public thinks sentencing is too lenient, but that perception tends to lessen when they're actually presented with real life scenarios. And another bit of research that I would just like to illustrate is the Sentencing Council again found that media coverage tends to focus on these specific emotive or extreme cases and 
the articles that people best remember are the ones with the sensationalist vocabulary and narratives, which suggest that the public may not be getting a true and accurate picture of the nature of crime. So the journalists and the media do have a lot of responsibility, but it's also the responsibility of police forces as well. When we were talking about the imagery, police forces are guilty themselves of using those the pictures of the serrated blades all have those knife handings and they'll say this is how many knives we've collected or taken off the streets this this week. Politicians as well, the language that they use in their public addresses and their press releases, even though the government and politicians show a commitment to rehabilitation in some aspects, often that is mirrored in the press releases that go out and filter through to the newspapers. Well, it's such a political topic, isn't it? It's sort of, you know, throwing red meat to your sort of, you know, your base um, and sort of whipping them up to think that we sort of live amongst sort of, you know, um, knife-wielding maniacs and they're everywhere and we're all actually in great danger. It's just sort of not true, but sort of somehow it always seems to be the kind of big voting topic, doesn't it? And Edwina, picking up on two of the points that, that Jamie and Jodie were making... You know, the one about public sentencing and, and as you say, whipping up. A, a good, a good uh, area to look at is county lines. So you've got, you know, young people being going out, um, uh, selling, selling drugs um, on a, the county line network. And the question becomes when you arrest someone who's 13, 14, 15, it used to be that these people were seen as perpetrators and they were dealt with harshly by the criminal justice system and by the police. But there are certain elements, certain police forces who now see these young people as victims who are groomed and therefore need help rather than perpetrators. And, you know, together you, you are seeing this is where the media and working with certain elements of, or I would say, progressive, but it's sort of new ways of um, understanding and advancing uh the, the 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 depth and underlying factors and causes of crime can change the way the crimes are dealt with the public views it and it starts to become a live debate and maybe over time it gets adopted by more than one or two police forces and can become the norm and you see this also with trauma informed policing and police now say, you know, we can't police our way out of youth violence, out of knife crime. It's basically when they say that, they're saying, you know, there are a lot of underlying causes and issues. And we are, we, 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 the, the old fashioned way of seeing it, or we just have to arrest them and throw away the key, isn't going to work. Um, so you can see the impact of journalism, uh, journalism working at the sort of on 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 the edges on the front line, helping to change society, hopefully for the better. Um, but then there's the other point that was raised by 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 all of you: how sensationalist journalism sells, and solutions journalism, which uh, tries to look at well, what what actually could be done to to you know to solve the problem or to move things forward. Now. The problem with solutions journalism, of course, is that many people think it doesn't sell because it's too much in the stories just positive and it's negative stories that sell. So solutions journalism is an art in itself, I believe. 
in order because if you are just doing solutions journalism as, as like the happy clappy side of things it's actually there will be very few outlets for it it has to be done there has to be always i think storytelling narrative has a yin and a yang and you you need to engage both even when you're doing the solutions based stuff in order because it we don't want to produce things that aren't read or in, or no one's interested in just because they're worthy. Yeah. So you mean you have to sort of challenge everything and sort of put the other side across as well and sort of critically analyze. Exactly. And you might look at the change mechanism, but you can't just be telling positive stories if you like. You know, that that is not going to have have legs or be sustainable in my opinion. The sort of counteraction to that is then just a purely negative story, it seems they do sell. It's a short-sighted sales strategy um, because, as I said, you know, the biggest reason for audience disengagement over a long period of time is because it's too depressing. Um, so I do think you need the variety. I think you need to recognise that the problem isn't always the end of the story. And when you're reporting on solutions, you know, those who are most affected by the problem will be likely to be the ones who are most efficiently finding the solutions. So it's sitting with the problem long enough to see what's born from it. And I totally agree. You know, it's not about putting a silver lining spin on something or, you know, being totally disengaged with the sentiment of the issue. Um, it's about, you know, it's still rigorous journalism that reports critically on tangible progress being made in order for readers to understand how issues are being dealt with. So it's very much about the process of change, helping people understand what success looks like, because you know, sometimes we do need to see it to believe it. And if we limit ourselves to stories of failure and problems, we, we, we kind of become trapped in this limited existence that's defined more by learning from what's not worked than from what has. And the problem with that is it's a very slow way to learn. And so when you are able to investigate success, you know, a lot of news looks for negative deviations. So where is crime increasing? Um, you know, and that's not just about crime. It's about a lot of things. You know, what is the kind of anomaly the extreme version of this issue and let's tell the story of that so that people can understand that. And solutions journalism is very much looking for the positive deviation. So with relation to crime, for example, where is it falling and, and why is it falling? And looking at what processes have been put in place that have allowed, you know, did it happen yesterday or did it happen five years ago and we're seeing the fruits of it now? Helping us understand what has happened? Um, is it scalable? Is it replicable? Is it something that we can learn from? Or is it isolated to this particular community because of some set of circumstances that they have that aren't experienced elsewhere? Unlikely. Um, you know, things are replicable and there's a lot of value in those stories and we can learn from them and it can accelerate positive change. But you're absolutely right. There's there's a, there's a huge art to it. And one of the problems that we find, you know, I'm a massive advocate for solutions journalism but the, the the hardest thing that I find and the first thing I have to do is always explain what it's not before I start explaining what it is so that at least when we're having a debate about its value we are actually talking about the same thing um, because you know solutions journalism has been played by a history of feel-good fluff and finalies you know it doesn't sell all these you know misunderstood and misplaced assumptions about it that aren't relevant anymore. Um, but we need to make sure that we've got the the framework and the understanding of, of what it actually is and how valuable it can be to organisations and to readers and to society.
And Jamie, with your report, you come up with solutions, which is great, and sort of pulling it all together, um, as well as sort of Jody's book and the books that sort of David's written. And what is your what's your ultimate hope from the report? And you know, what are you hoping that charities might get from it? People with lived experience who might have a negative um, experience of being interviewed, and yeah, what what would be your your hope from it? Yeah, so we heard from people with lived experience of the criminal justice system. They often want to share their story about where they've been and the work that they're doing now, how they've changed. And journalists are often keen to interview such individuals. Um, we heard that increasingly journalists want to tell the stories of individuals rather than just simply reporting on government press releases. Um, but people with lived experience reg regularly have negative experiences when dealing with the media. Um, there was one example of someone with lived experience who leads a charity now and he was doing an interview with a journalist and talking about his, you know, the solutions to, to crime in this country and um, talking about some learnings from his own experience and afterwards the journalist misconstrued that interview massively and said that he was shifting from left to right, that she was afraid, he or she was afraid that the individual was going to attack them sensationalizing that interview in a way that that wasn't really true and i have heard from we have heard anecdotal evidence from charities as well that they have stopped putting people with lived experience forward for interviews because of some of those negative experiences they've had in the past with the media so we've got some practical suggestions in the report about how journalists can better work with people who have lived experience one of them is to only mention an individual's conviction if it's relevant to the story. That conviction represents perhaps the most shameful, embarrassing, painful moment in that individual's life and to have it continuously dragged up in the media where often it's permanent, can be online forever. We want to try and avoid that where possible. And the journalist should also have an open conversation with the individual about whether they're going to include mention of that conviction or not. Another thing that we found through previous work that we've done is that people with lived experience often bring fresh thinking to key challenges within criminal justice, those closest to the problem, the closest to the solution. And we recommend that that should be recognised and utilised by journalists. They should ask them for their views on what needs to change in the criminal justice system. They should also highlight their skills, aspirations and potential. We've had Dominic Raab very recently saying that people with convictions make very committed, trusted employees. And we also have recognized that in our own work, the very, some very passionate individuals who've got lived experience of the criminal justice system, some very skilled individuals. And we recommend that journalists should recognize that and, and should draw on their expertise in discussing the solutions to crime and improving the criminal justice system. Do you feel like we've got a long way to go on it? Um, I'm conscious of time, but David, do you feel that we've still got a long way to go? Or are you quite buoyed by the fact that maybe in the last decade we have come on quite far? I think we've, we've made some progress, but certain subjects seem stuck. Uh, things like um, stop and search. It's very polarised different views but it is at least a debate which I'm pleased about. I recently or last year did a piece where I I, I, I went beyond stop and search. I, I took two streets in Brixton and I just went and asked 
25 households, I think they were uh, roughly half white, half black, as they turned out. Four questions. How many of them had been suffered police raids? How many had dealt with... Um, have they ever been raided by the police? Has anyone in your household ever been arrested or gone to jail? And then uh, conversely, had did they see the police as people as as an organisation that had helped them and been a force for good? And the the answers were quite shocking. With something like seventy percent of black households, but no white households had been raided in these two streets. Seventy percent raided. This is not just stopped and searched. These are raids. And 65% of black respondents had experienced someone in their household being arrested, just 7% whites. Um, and then it was completely the opposite in terms of how they saw the police as a force of, for good, with whites like 90% uh, said they were, and something like, you know, um, not a single black household thought they were a force for good. And when I published this, which was I, I thought was kind of interesting, um, I got trolled on social media by, you know, some uh, ver various various people were responded very very angrily to this report. Like, and when I looked at who they were, most of them were ex policemen, who, um, you know, they just there there are certain when you when you are telling a story that goes counter, um, you they you then get accused of, well, you are going to fan the flames. For a black rebellion in in Brixton, you know, so there are certain, and that that makes me feel very uh, low, if you like, as as a journalist. I think, wow, you know, so the truth is so dangerous that it's actually seen as 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 a potential negative, rather than, wow, you know, we might have to look. Um, at this because it's 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 shedding light on something that's really uncomfortable. You know, I like to think that actually these people are in the minority, but um, it is a constant a constant battle. And you know, Jody, myself, and Jamie, we we are come from our own very limited perspectives. There is a, so much a, a big wider picture out there, and um, I you know from my point of view, yes, there's some progress, but it's it's. Um, it's like a, a battle that, that is being joined all the time. And sometimes, you know, I have to face that I might be on the wrong side as well. I might also need my consciousness raised or, you know, I will upset some people with lived experience because I may have not realized that actually there is something that, you know, there's a convention of not giving people copy approval which has uh, for, you know, you might check facts, but you don't want to become a PR agent. At the same time, that puts you at risk of maybe misunderstanding, misconstruing something. Yeah, context is everything, isn't it? And we can't exactly. all be in each other's heads and know where each other's trigger points are, can we? Yeah. And I think that as long as we open, we stay open to, to, to learning, then we, we as, as journalists, that's an important thing that I try and hold myself to. But, um, you know, I used to be much more, uh, if somebody, if I did upset somebody, you want to be defensive. And, but actually, it's important to listen because, you know, for example, young people who, they, they, there is like a code where you can talk about what's happened to you. But if it happened and you, you might in the interview talk about 
somebody else who got stabbed. But there is a code. You don't talk about other people's experiences. And because uh, it's seen as, it could be seen as um, dissing them or ratting on them or whatever it is. So unless you know that, you, 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 you don't realize there's a, there's a red line there that could get them in trouble with their peers. And, you know, it's, it doesn't matter that what they said, it's not like you were inaccurate. It's just that you were unaware of some of the social context. That if you want that lived experience person to feel good about what they've done, and which is important because you want them to, you know, they, they should be hopefully do more than one interview, either more than with you or with others, then they have to also feel that they were treated with, uh, you know, with, with, with respect. And, and you may have done so, but you may still upset them. So it's, it's complex and, and difficult. Yeah. Jodie, are you optimistic? Um, in the time that you've sort of spent in, in your career? I am. I mean, I think what I've learned, you know, seeing the change in the kind of rise in solutions journalism over the last 12 years from moving something, from being something of a kind of caricature of journalism to something that's become quite a robust practice with, you know, well-grounded um, resources and frameworks and the way it's moving into the education system, you know, it there is there is growth we are far from the finish line for sure um but i think as yeah you know as david said i think it it takes a lot of us we're all limited in our kind of niche and our experience and our understanding um but the more people that come on board the more people that decide to pursue this as their hobby passion career whatever it is um you know everybody helps move the dial and I do think that I've seen it, you know, I have seen it move over the last 10 years. So I'm hopeful that it's it's possible. You know, it might not still be probable at the moment, but it's definitely possible. And that gives me hope. And and Jamie, the report is out. Um, as I said, it's called Behind Closed Doors. What, what will be your sort of action points after people will put the link to the report in the footnotes of the podcast? But if people were sort of interested after they've read it, to explore more um, through the Criminal Justice Alliance. Um, do you have plans to kind of build on this? So if I could just go back to Jody's and uh, David's point first and I'll come to that one. Um, so yeah, David talked about the reactions that he can sometimes get to stories. And that was something that another journalist brought up in our report that one of the greatest difficulties in reporting can often be challenging these preconceived ideas that people have about criminal justice. And in the charity sector, we also know that that can be really difficult as well, because that's what the Criminal Justice Alliance tries to do day in, day out, is to influence attitudes and to show people what works in the criminal justice system and how we're really going to respond to this problem of crime and how we can reduce reoffending. But there are definitely examples of journalistic work influencing change. And we've just finished shortlisting for our annual media awards and two examples that immediately jump out that showed the change that that can occur as a result of reporting. Sarah Turnage did a story for HuffPost, which showed that the Metropolitan Police is more likely to post a press release on your case if you're black compared to if you're white, which is then disseminated across social media, spread across newspapers and affecting perceptions. As a result of that investigation that she did, the Met Police said they're going to have a look and consider whether they need to monitor press releases for disproportionality. So that's one concrete example of change. Um, another example is the Freshwater series from The Guardian Today in Focus podcast. 
So that podcast looked at the Freshwater Five who had been convicted around 10 years ago of one of the largest drug smuggling plots in history and have all maintained their innocence and have going through the appeals process. As a result of that podcast, Appeal, who's been handling a charity that's been handling the case and providing some evidence, messages to their website found that local residents were thinking differently about the case. So the media can have a, an impact in public attitudes and in holding the government and criminal justice agencies to account as well and changing practice. And what we want to do is to work with journalists to implement some of the practical solutions that we mentioned in the report and to build a movement of journalists really who are reporting on criminal justice in a sensitive, constructive and nuanced way. In terms of next steps, we're going to be holding an event later in the month with a panel of current and former journalists bringing together charities and journalists to discuss how reporting on criminal justice can be improved. And we want that to be the start of conversations, really. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, we want this to be the start of the conversation, not the end of the conversation. And we want to work with journalists to implement some of these findings. We're also hoping to produce some more practical guidance. This report has been about scoping the issues. What, we'd, what we would like to do next is to produce some practical guidance that we can send to journalists that they can use and implement in their own reporting. And I just wanted to come back on the point that David made as well about individuals with lived experience being able to look at stories before they're published. We understand journalists' concerns about bias and it's not common practice for a journalist to show a story to an individual. I used to work for a PR agency dealing with business clients and I would never have expected a journalist at a national newspaper to give me a chance to look at what they were writing about the company because it's just not the done thing. But given the impact that it can have on someone with lived experience, if their story is misrepresented and is out there in the public domain for good, we would suggest that a journalist might want to discuss. Having, it's about having open conversations with the individuals that, that you're liaising with. And journalists as well also mentioned to us the importance of providing aftercare, the individual, and also extending the impact of the story that a story can have as well because when a journalist wants to speak to you it's a very exciting thing and the impulse is to just jump on that opportunity but there's a recognition that you have to explain what the impact is to that individual on, on being named in a report and that's not just the journalist's responsibility that's also the charities who are working with them that's their responsibility as well yeah we've all got our part to play in that haven't we um as i said the link to the report will be in the footnotes of the podcast and um i feel like we barely scratched the surface because you could talk about all these individual aspects of responsible journalism couldn't you whether it's poverty mental health racism the criminal justice system you could go on for for days but um thank you so much for speaking with me today it's been really brilliant to have you on the podcast thank you for having us thanks edwina thank you Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.